0: Bench to Bedside Brown Bag Podcast Series, a podcast series about development, treatment, and evidence based protocols developed by Kessler Foundation researchers for rehabilitation therapists. This podcast series is sponsored by Kessler Foundation and has been co organized by Drs. A.M. Barrett and Dr. Nancy Shavarlatti of Kessler Foundation, Kelly Kearns, Monique Tremaine, and Miss Tina Collar of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Our first podcast was presented by Dr. Nancy Shavrlati and Nancy Moore, who presented Treating New Learning and Memory Deficits and Rehabilitation Populations, the Modified Story Memory Technique. Dr. Shavrlati is Director of Neuropsychology and Neuroscience and Traumatic Brain Injury Research at Kessler Foundation. Nancy Moore is the Research Manager for Neuropsychology and Neuroscience and the Traumatic Brain Injury Research also at Kessler Foundation. To follow along with this podcast, be sure and download the presentation slides. A link can be found within the description of this podcast. This podcast was recorded at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, West Orange, New Jersey, on Thursday, January 18th, 2018, and was edited and produced by Joan Banksmith, smith creative producer for Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in.
1: Thank you all for coming. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm happy to be able to talk to you a little bit more about evidence-based cognitive rehabilitation tools across different populations. So I'm going to start by talking about um, different techniques for memory rehabilitation that actually have an evidence base in the literature. I'm sad to say that that's a very short list of things that actually have a strong evidence base and I'm hoping as we move forward the evidence base gets larger Um, but I am going to talk a little bit about what's out there what has class one and I'm looking for class one research evidence and I'll explain what that is in, in a few minutes and then I'm going to go on to talk about the modified story memory technique that's what MSMT stands for and that's a technique that we developed at the foundation we've been working on it for over a decade now, and have it has a lot of literature support that I'll be showing you. And then we'll talk about the nuts and bolts of the modified story memory technique and how you actually do it. What the content is. Um, I know some of you may already be familiar with the technique because I know we've talked about it previously. But if um, if there are any questions as we go along, I'd like this to be as interactive as possible. So please stop me if there are any questions people have. If you want to jump in, I'm happy to to yield the floor, so to speak. Um, Before we start, though, in your binders, the binder I had picked up, there's a a top sheet that has just a, it's kind of just a one-page information. So the front page talks about the literature a little bit and has two tables on it, and then the back of that talks about the story memory technique specifically. After that, you have two sheets that have slides on them. Are there only two sheets in everyone's binder? Okay, because there are a lot more slides than that. There were actually eight pages. So if anyone has the pe- the document that was sent around, that should have all the slides. But if not, um, we can send that to you if you don't have it. So just let me know toward the end, and I can forward. It. I'll forward a new document so that you have the actual slides. Okay, so just to begin talking about memory rehabilitation and what we're trying to accomplish when we're... Rehabilitating memory processes, and I know a lot of you probably already know a lot of this information, but just to kind of be comprehensive and make sure we're all on the same page, I just wanted to start here. So the memory process can be broken down into three general stages. We have the encoding process, where information is being learned. New information is being um, entered into the brain, so to speak, so people are being introduced to new concepts. And that you could think of as someone who's in a school environment, who's actually being introduced to new concepts all the time. But in reality, it's part of our everyday life. We're meeting new people, learning new faces, um, learning names associated with those faces, learning new skills at work, learning different routes to get to different places. There are a whole bunch of things that we learn in our daily lives every single day. So our everyday life functioning is very reliant on encoding or learning new information. The second stage is consolidation. Consolidation is the process by which those new memories are consolidated. They're hardened. So when I talk to lay audiences, I talk talk about that stage as when you're pouring the cement for a a house, for the foundation, just walking away and letting that cement harden. That's consolidation. The data indicates that a lot of that happens during sleep. One of the reasons sleep is so important to your cognition, but it happens at other times as well. And then finally we have retrieval. So retrieval is what most people think about as memory. It's when your memory fails. It's when you're trying to pull out information that you've previously learned. And that previously learned information could be learned 50 years ago, or it could be learned, could have been learned 10 minutes ago. It's that pulling out of, um, of information. Most memory problems are blamed on retrieval, not because they're actually due to retrieval deficits, but because retrieval is where memory is seen to fail. So what we do, human nature, is to blame the most recent failure, and that's in the retrieval process. That doesn't mean retrieval is actually the problem, though. So I'm gonna show you a little bit of data to, to, um, to indicate that. So this is MS data. It was collected back in the 1990s here at the foundation. Um, and we have some very similar data in TBI. The TBI data tells the same story. So what we see on the left side of the screen is a bar that indicates how many repetitions of information it took for people to learn a list of words. So it took persons with MS 8.3 trials to learn a list of words. However, when we looked at the control group, it only took them on average 4.9 trials to learn the same list of words. And this was a significant difference, telling us that persons with MS were having difficulty learning new information. So we constructed a trial in which patients were given unlimited trials to learn information. So they were actually given up to 15 repetitions of the word list to learn that word list. That's how we realized that it took them 8.3 trials. When we went back, and so now we know that they learned the word list because it took them 8.3 trials to learn that word list. We went back, we tested recall and recognition, and there was no significant difference between persons with MS and healthy controls on recall and recognition. So what this is telling us is that persons with MS were having difficulty learning new information. And we saw the exact same picture in persons who have TBI. So what does that mean? Why do I start by presenting this data? Because we're talking about cognitive rehabilitation today. We're not talking about memory in general. What this is telling us is that the most effective treatment has to target new learning. We don't want to target consolidation, we don't want to target retrieval or recall, we want to target that new learning process and help people learn new information in more effective ways. So when we look at the literature, unfortunately the literature, particularly the older literature, doesn't really break down new learning and memory that way. Um, So it's a little bit difficult to see exactly what processes each of these different memory rehabilitation protocols are targeting. But generally what we see is this is a review, many of you are probably familiar with the Cicerone reviews. He did three of them. The first one was in 2000. The second one was published in 2008. And the third one was published in 2011. And what he did in his reviews, he broke up different cognitive rehabilitation protocols by domain. So he has a memory section, a language section, visual-spatial processing section, and attention section. I am only looking at memory. So what I'm saying today has nothing to do with any of the other cognitive domains. Then what he did was he looked at the level of evidence supporting each different technique that improved. So now we're talking about memory. So that improved memory. And a practice standard was a study that had at least one randomized clinical trial that supported its efficacy. For those of you who may not be familiar, a randomized clinical trial is a study in which patients are prospectively assigned to one of two groups, either a treatment group or a control group. They're given the treatment and then they're evaluated post-treatment. So they're evaluated pre-treatment, they're randomly assigned to one of two groups, only one group gets the treatment, the other group does not, and then they're evaluated at post-treatment. And what he found, what he did was he broke studies down into those that um, provided class one evidence, class two evidence, class three evidence, and class four evidence. I'm not going to go into the details of all the different, what, what um, leads to the qualification for each class, but what I will say is the class, class one is what we want. Class one is a procedure that is supported by a, at least one randomized clinical trial. Class 2 is good. So we want to see more Class 2s, and we have seen more Class 2s in the literature as well as Class 1s, um, but the literature is still building. And then Class 3 and 4, are more of your observational studies, we follow a group of patients, and we see that they improve. So what he found in looking at the TBI and stroke literature, and this is now in 2011, is that there was only one practice standard for um, for treating new learning and memory in TBI. And that was um, for mild memory impairments in TBI that include internalized strategies such as visual imagery. So he's, this is strategy training, is what he's talking about, as well as external memory compensations, which you use here all the time, such as notebooks. Um, and that was a practice standard. So what that means is that was prescribed uniformly. This is what everybody should be using. He then had practice guidelines, and practice guidelines have at least two class two studies, may not have any class one evidence, um, but class guidelines or practice guidelines are pretty good, and what they say is this is something that you should consider using. It's not necessarily something you have to use, but it's something you should consider using for, um, for administering cognitive rehabilitation, or in this case, memory rehabilitation. And for that, he had the use of external compensations that a direct application to functional activities. So again, the, my one problem with, with this is that we don't have specific treatments to use when, he, when we're talking in this terminology. It's getting better now. Now they're talking more specifically about specific treatment protocols. Back here At this point, it was a little bit more general than I would have liked to have seen. And then there were two practice options, one being, um, and the, the first one is really just for, people with more severe memory impairments, which included errorless learning. But you'll see later that I think errorless learning is now included among the strategies more as a practice standard. Um, And then group-based interventions being considered, but again, no quantification in terms of exactly what's in those group-based interventions, just that group-based interventions are effective. Moving a little, now there haven't really been any evidence-based reviews since then. I believe there is one currently in progress. Um, but still has quite a bit of time to go. What did what was published, though, was a review by Hedge that looked specifically at musical mnemonics associated with mood and memory retraining. And this was more of a specific technique that targeted memory encoding and retrieval. So it included musical exercises and lyrics, like songs and rhythms, um, chants. And what it focused on was mood congruence states facilitating memory recall um, via network to music. So, and he did have, it's actually a very good review article that does include um, discussion of the neural networks and how they influence music and how music is helping memory. So this is another memory, um, musical, musical mnemonics is something that has, although it hasn't been classified as a practice standard in any specific evidence-based reviews to date, it does have a lot of evidence supporting it in the TBI literature. So it's something that could should definitely be considered as an option in, in treatment. So, and that's basically what the evidence in TBI and Stroke supports right now in terms of memory specifically. So certainly external memory aids, which have been used for years, music, imagery, which was in the first item that we had discussed. That's one of the strategy, internalized strategy-based techniques, and then other strategy-based techniques such as errorless learning. Now once again, errorless learning, self-generation, those were not included in Cicerone's article as having class one evidence. But in looking at the more recent literature, those are techniques that probably have gotten to that point where they will soon be classified as um, achieving class one evidence. Shifting populations a little bit just to look at MS, um, because MS is a little bit of a different population that I know you see here. So when we look at MS, we did the evidence-based review on new learning and memory, on cognitive rehabilitation in general in MS. We modeled it after the Cicerone review, and so we included, it was this exact same structure. It went by domain, and then we classified rehabilitation protocols as being a practice standard, practice option, and practice guideline. What we found was, and again, I'm presenting only memory today. I'm not talking about any of the other domains because there is evidence for treatment in the other domains as well. Um, But as far as practice standards, the only thing that really, when you looked at the research literature, the only thing that really met the criteria for a practice standard is the modified story memory technique, which is what we developed here. There are four other practice options. So practice option is that second category, where there's a decent amount of data supporting its efficacy, but it it hasn't gone through the large randomized clinical trial to date. And those four practice options are interestingly very similar to what we see in TBI and stroke. Imagery, which actually is the basis of the story memory technique. Music, which I just discussed as being an effective procedure in persons with TBI and stroke. As well as self-generation and space trials, which... um, are two techniques similar to errorless learning that can be applied in a a rehabilitation setting and patients can be taught to use them in their their daily lives. So this is my disclaimer, and I know I already said it, I'm gonna say it again. This talk reviews specific interventions for treating memory impairment. It doesn't reflect cognitive rehabilitation as a whole, which does have wide support in TBI, stroke, and MS. So we can go into many articles out there in the literature that say cognitive rehabilitation is supported by research in all of these populations and that it does lead to improvement. That's not what I'm looking for, though. What I'm looking for is, because cognitive rehabilitation is a big term, like, all right, cognitive rehabilitation, so great, we get a couple hours a week. What does that mean? What am I going to do in those couple of hours? What techniques is the literature showing help the most? And that's the level of guidance I think the field needs at this point is the clinical trials that show this works, this doesn't. So that clinicians have some footing when they're trying to get paid from an insurance company. So that is why I wanted to put this disclaimer in here. I'm talking about specific interventions that have data. I also want to mention that I am not including data on exercise as a means of improving memory. There is a lot of data supporting that exercise improves memory as well as many other aspects of cognition. It's a whole. I think it's a whole talk in and of itself. There's a lot of data in MS, a lot in TBI. I'm not as familiar with the stroke literature, but I know that there's a, a good deal of data there too. Um, but that's not included here. So um, just as a disclaimer, so you know what I'm not referring to. So looking across these three populations, we have stroke, TBI, and MS. Um, there are several supported techniques that have a good grounding in the literature. One is music. One is strategy-based techniques. And this is a grouping. So this includes self-generation. It includes spacing. It includes errorless learning. It includes self-testing. And if anybody wants more details about that, I have a lot of details. I could do a whole hour only on strategy-based techniques because they are out there. Um, And they're actually very interesting and very useful across populations. And then imagery. So I'm going to go through each one of these um, briefly and I'm going to end on imagery. The reason I'm ending on imagery is because the story memory technique is really based on imagery. So in discussing the story memory technique, I'm really discussing a large part of that is imagery. So in music, I'm just reviewing two studies or mentioning two studies that were done and this is in the MS literature. This study just looked at spoken versus sung list of words. And what they found, if you look at the red, the red line on top, on the top part of the figure, that's when people have the words put to music. The bottom part is when it's spoken. And they saw a significant effect of the number of words recalled. And they also saw increased frontal activity when people were learning these words via sung. So what they're showing is that putting things to words Putting words to music is really facilitating learning and memory. And this was done across two studies. It wasn't only one study. Um, So this is good evidence in the MS literature, and then there's additional evidence in the TBI literature as well. Then when we talk about strategy training, these are some of the strategies that we've utilized here in some of our research. But there are other strategies that are available out there. So self-generation, space learning, retrieval practice, and errorless learning are strategies that we've used here in our research. I've used the first three. Dr. Barats used errorless learning in some of her research. What we see in general with the strategy training is that the treatment gains that we see remain over several months. So when we train somebody to use a strategy, they're able to use that strategy over several months. They're not losing it. They're not losing their ability to, to, to use the strategy. What still remains unknown, although we've tried to draw some conclusions about it, we really don't have solid data yet, is how this generalizes to daily life. And that's a critical question because we need to see not only that patients can remember better in our nice, quiet settings without distraction, but that they can actually remember things better in their daily lives when they're at home and they're trying to function in a real environment. And that's actually where we are now in terms of designing studies that look at that. So I really like this quote that I came across last year when I was writing a grant, because I think it's really telling. <clears throat> More than 100 years of distributed practice research has demonstrated that spaced versus massed learning consistently shows benefits regardless of retention interval. So I think that's really interesting. I mean, I have three kids, and they go to school, and they always want to study the night before for an exam, and it drives me insane. And this is what I tell them. So this is why we don't study for exams. You're going to learn it a lot better and you remember it a lot more if you just take a couple of days and learn it slowly. And I think this is one of those techniques that we can incorporate into cognitive rehabilitation and teach patients how to use because people can apply it in their daily life as long as they can plan ahead or they can get some help planning ahead. Finally, I want to note in this, on this topic that combining strategies has been shown to be more effective than using one method alone. And I see this as really a toolbox approach. So if you teach patients three or four strategies and you teach them about scenarios in which one strategy may work better than another, you're providing them with a toolbox and they can pull out the strategy that they need at any given point in time. Spacing is not going to work in every situation because you don't always have the time to plan ahead, but it will work in some, whereas self-testing might work in another where you have a more critical, shorter period of time to learn the information. And there, I think there are ways, and there are ways in which we're trying to start to teach patients how to use these different strategies in different scenarios. So just to give you an idea of self-generation and spaced learning and the work that's going on, I'm not going over any of the data we've already collected, although you can go in the literature, and I could also provide you references if you want to look at some of the data we've already collected. We haven't done any clinical trials with this yet, though, and that's what we're actually starting right now. We've developed a treatment protocol called STEM, Strategy Training to Enhance Memory. Um, And what STEM does is it incorporates self-generation, spaced learning, and self-testing. And it teaches patients how to use those three techniques as well as their significant others when we can get significant others to attend the sessions and how to apply the techniques in their daily life. So that's all incorporated within the treatment sessions. There are eight treatment sessions and we have... It's current, believe it or not, I, it started in MS. We did a pilot study in MS and showed some really great data, um, but then we ran a quick trial in TBI because we wanted to include it as the site-specific research study in our TBI model system. So the big clinical trial, this is actually part of our TBI model system. So although we started in MS, it kind of, it's not, the big trial in MS is not funded yet and it's actually the big trial that's being run in TBI. Um, And this is just beginning now. We just got our IRB approval, and we're starting to recruit participants now. So this is an eight-session treatment protocol where they come in, and they learn. First they learn what memory is and what memory is not. So attention is different from memory. So if you're having problems paying attention, that's not memory. Um, Then they learn about the techniques one at a time. So we spend two sessions on each technique and the first step is to teach them about the technique and what it does and why it works or why we think it works. The next step is then to teach them how to use it and to give them real life material and actually using it. And then we do that, we do two sessions on the generation effect or self-generation. We do two sessions on the spacing effect or spaced learning. And then we do two sessions on the testing effect, um, which is, what am I? Um, Self testing. Self testing. Sorry. We call it different things depending on who we're talking to. Um, so we'll, I look forward to providing the final data on, on this. The, this is the MS data. So, what we've seen so far is that in the treatment group, the blue line is the treatment group in each of these graphs, and the green line is the control group. Perceived deficits is the perceived deficits questionnaire. A lower score is better. And what we see is a nice decline in patients' self-report of perceived deficits in their daily life. And then on the right, you see quality of life. Again, the blue line is treatment and the green line is control. And you see that the treatment group improves from baseline to follow-up in their overall quality of life. They report a better quality of life and the control group shows a decline. So we're showing some very nice preliminary results. This is only in about 18 people. So it's a very small study. Um, so hopefully we'll be back to you with positive results on that in traumatic brain injury um, very soon. So now I want to spend the rest of the time talking about imagery because that is the mo this is the most well-developed treatment protocol that we have at this point, the MSMT or Modified Story Memory Technique. We have several publications on this. Treatment in particular, and I would refer you to the one pager that I have on the back of that one pager, all of those articles are listed. I think there are eight or nine of them. Um, so we have um, data crossing multiple different types of data, of uh, results crossing multiple different types of data, including neuropsychological testing, everyday life data, and imaging showing that this works in both MS and TBI. So what does the protocol consist of? Um, It's a protocol specifically targeting new learning. So it doesn't, we're not trying to address attention, executive functioning, processing speed, all the other different components of of cognition, and we're not even trying to impact retrieval. We're specifically targeting new learning. We've done a randomized control, we've done actually two different randomized control trials, one in MS and one in TBI. The treatment is administered over 10 sessions two times a week for five weeks, and they last roughly 30 to 90 minutes in duration. Now that a lot of people ask me about the two times a week for five weeks, that's convenience and practical for what we were doing in our trial. There's no data indicating that you have to do it two times a week, you can't do it three times a week. I do think you need a day in between. I think it's better to do it every other day so patients have time to um, assimilate the technique into their daily life and actually work with the technique in their daily life, but there's no data supporting that. That's just my opinion. The 30 to 90 minutes in duration, that's variable because it depends on how long it takes a patient to actually finish the task at hand. In some of the sessions, they're writing stories. And for persons who have a moderate to severe TBI, that can be very difficult. In the MS population, it tends to go a little bit quicker, um, but there's very high variability. We've looked at neuropsychological assessment, neuroimaging, and daily life as far as our outcome measures. So I mentioned that these are in your packet. Um, and this is the data for the, the behavioral data for the MS group. So what we showed, our main outcome was the CVLT, learning trials. And what we showed was a significant improvement in the amount, number of words people learned across the five trials after treatment. So the treatment group is in blue and the control group is in green. And what we see is that on the first trial, they're at about the same level on trial one. And then as you move along on each trial, the two groups separate out. And what theoretically what's happening is the treatment group is actually applying the imagery and the context in learning that information and they're able to remember more information over the repetition on those five trials. When we talk about everyday life, The best way available to us right now to assess everyday life is unfortunately self-report as well as family report. Um, And what we see is that the treatment group in blue reports an improvement in general contentment from before to after treatment, whereas the control group reports no change. So we're seeing that the patient is now reporting that they're doing better in their daily life. On the right side of the screen, you see the Frisbee total score. This is the family form. So what the family is reporting here, in this case a lower score is better, and the treatment group is in blue. So a family is reporting that the co- cognitive problems are less intrusive in their daily life, that they're bec- more manageable at home, and the their cognitive problems are not interfering with their daily life as much as they had been after treatment. In addition, on functional MRI, we're seeing changes, so from before to after treatment. So what we're seeing is increased activity after treatment, but importantly, we're only seeing the increased activity in areas that theoretically are underlying what we're teaching in the treatment protocol. So we're seeing, after treatment, we're seeing more activity in the parietal lobes, areas that would be responsible for more spatial functioning, as well as the frontal lobes, which would underlie more of the executive contextual um, learning. We also see differences in resting state functional connectivity. So for those of you who are not familiar with this, this is a technique where patients are really not doing anything, and we're measuring the connectivity between different brain regions, their communication. And what we saw was more connectivity after treatment in the treatment group from the left hippocampus to bilateral insula. So what we're seeing is that the hippocampus, and on on the right side of the screen, you see it for the right hippocampus. It's the same pattern. But what we're seeing is that the hippocampus, presumably our memory and learning center, is communicating more with other areas of the brain even when it's at rest after treatment. Finally, what we also see is that these effects are maintained over time, which is really, I I thought this was really fantastic. So in the treatment group, on the left side of the screen, they're in green, and you see that nice increase that we saw earlier from pre- to post-treatment and then it levels out. So they are declining a little bit over six months, but really not much, and they're still distinctly different from the control group. So they're distinctly different from the group that was not treated. So we're seeing that not only are we achieving these effects behaviorally, but we're also they're also maintained over a six-month period of time. So this is a long-term effect that we're able to see. We see that long, this is MS data, so we see that long-term effect in MS. It is a little bit attenuated in TBI, but they can still remember this information, they can, they can still remember the strategies over a long period of time, so they're able to use the context and imagery six months later. It is a little bit more attenuated than what we see in MS. On the right side of the serene, you see that there are still differences in at the level of the brain six months post-treatment as well. Now in TBI, the pattern is a little bit different, but we see the same, the same general pattern. Before, from the control group is on the left side of the screen and the treatment group is on the right. From before to after treatment, before treatment is light blue, after treatment is dark blue. So we see the control, treat, the control group show a small decline. This paragraph we presented at the second testing was probably a little more difficult than the one at the first testing. Whereas the treatment group on the right side of the screen show a very nice increase from before treatment to after treatment, and this was a significant difference. In terms of everyday memory, we also saw an improvement. This is on the Rivermead Behavioral Memory Test, and we saw that um, almost 45% of patients in the treatment condition improved on their Rivermead performance, whereas in the control condition, only about 18% showed an improvement in their performance, and that was also significant. I didn't want to go into this in detail because we could really get lost in the details of imaging data, so I kind of scrunched it all so that I didn't, I wasn't tempted to go through everything in, de- in detail. Um, but what I do want to let you know is the same pattern of changes that we saw in the MS group from before to after treatment on imaging, we also saw in the TBI group. So we looked at it a little bit differently because the imaging technology had changed in the years between the two studies. But what we saw was significant changes in the default mode network as well as in the con- executive control network. Now all you really need to know from that, those, that lingo is what we found is in terms of increased activation in the default mode network that meant that the learning task was less cognitively demanding post-treatment. So we're making it easier for these guys to learn the information. What the decreased executive control network activation meant is that they're likely applying new more efficient strategies to learning. So this is becoming less cognitively demanding and a little bit more more automatized for them. So in general, um, to try to summarize what I've presented on the story memory technique, we learned that the treatment is effective. We have behavioral data, everyday life data, and neuroimaging data supporting it. We know that it is effective in both persons with MS and persons with TBI from these publications. We do have work ongoing. Um, Sorry for the typo on the slide. We have a study funded in pediatric traumatic brain injury. So right now we're in the process. We took the treatment protocol and we revised it. And when you see the content, you'll see that some of the content really needed revision for pediatrics. So we revised it so that it was appropriate for children so that we think it's appropriate for children. And then the next step was to test it on 10 healthy kids and get there, not necessarily in terms of efficacy, but in terms of how they react to the stimuli. So what do you think about the stories? Are they interesting? Are they boring? Are any of them insulting? Is there anything you don't understand? Is there anything that's too simple? Those kinds of questions. So we've tested seven of the 10 that we need to do. We, I think we have three more left. So that's one. Um, modification. After we finish these three, we'll revise the treatment again based on their feedback, and then we'll test it in a group of children that have had traumatic brain injury. So this work is being done in collaboration with Children's Specialized Hospital. Um, And then the other avenue that we're pursuing right now is a group-based treatment. We heard from a lot of clinicians that you know I'm not privy to the insurance process because thank the good lord I don't have to deal with it and you guys all do Um, but what I've heard from people is that when you're trying to get cognitive rehabilitation funded it's easier to get it funded for group therapy than it is for individual therapy so I don't know if that's true here but that was true at other places so we developed this in a group treatment format and that's currently being tested um, it's available right now in the individual format. The group format is, has not been validated yet, though we're in the process of doing that. Um, and then finally, we have it translated into Spanish, Chinese, and actually Italian. The Italian's not ready to go yet. I don't really know where we are with the Italian. Um, but the Spanish and the Chinese are pretty much ready to go, and we have strong pilot data in Spanish that we'll be presenting and publishing in the, in the coming months. So what the treatment consists of. This is the, the more usable part, the um, nuts and bolts of it. Um, and Nancy Moore is here with me. Nancy's my research manager. She's been involved in this work since the very beginning and she actually knows more about the nuts and bolts of the treatment than I do. Um, so any specific questions or any follow-up, Nancy will take care of because that's where I get lost because uh, she deals with the day to day. Thank God. <laughs> so overall, we're teaching two skills. The first skill is imagery, and that's in sessions one through four. The second skill is context, and that's in sections five through in sessions five through eight. And I'll, I'm going to go through each, each the session so you get an idea of what's happening. And then the final two sessions, I, I mentioned that there are ten sessions, are generalization. So those two sessions use everyday life very memory demanding situations. So if you have to learn a to-do list, if you have to learn a shopping list, if you're not, if it's not, writing these things down is not available to you. If you have to learn directions, those are the things that are used in those last two sessions so that you're actually working with daily life material and you learn to apply the strategy when you're working with daily life material. So sessions one through four, the imagery. Um, what happens is they have a paragraph, and I'll show you the, one of the paragraphs in front of them, and they're told that each story contains capitalized words to remember. And what we want you to do is create mental images of each storyline. Picture the characters, picture the setting, and there's more direction there. Um, and in this case the context is there. We are giving them the story. The story is the context that we're using in this treatment protocol. So the first step, the first thing they have to learn is how to apply imagery. So this is, you can, a, uh, this is the first story. Mr. Jones pulled a fresh apple from a tree. You'll notice apple is capitalized. That's one of the target words. And you'll also notice that I didn't give, we didn't give them any instruction yet in terms of how to visualize. We're just telling them to create visual images and they have no idea how to do this. Um, so they go through the story. This is up for how long? Uh, 100 milliseconds, so basically a minute and a half. Okay, so a minute and a half. If they didn't get through the whole story, they can't, we can keep the story up there. There's no rhyme or reason. We kind of kept it up for the duration of time where most people could finish the story and process it and be ready to move on. There are patients that move slower, though, and we want them to get through the story. They, it's, this is not a lesson in how much you can read and process. It's more a lesson in how you're, you're um, creating the visual imagery. So as you can see, some of these words are very concrete. Apple, um, butter, diamonds, coffee, chair, hammer. Others are more abstract, so market, priest, palace, they become a little bit more abstract, a Little have multiple meanings, um, but then when you go on to words like betrayal, discretion, and even gender in some cases, they become, it's a lot more difficult for people to visualize them. So in the early sessions, the, there's a high representation of concrete words, although the abstract words are still there. In the later sessions, there's a higher representation of abstract words because a lot of our daily lives are, much, are not concrete and they are abstract and we need to try to teach people how to um, visualize even the abstract concepts. Um, between stories, so what they do is they'll see the story <clears throat> and then we ask them questions about the story. So tell me as many words as you remember. Um, and then after they do that, we'll cue them. So we give them a cue like one was a piece of fruit. Um, and that's the first word. And if they can't remember the word apple, then we give them what's the next thing? So it's the context, story, it's the context. The story first, and then if they don't know it, then we give them a cue for a category. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so that we're, we're getting an idea of how many words they're recalling and how many they can recall with the cues. And then at that point, we go through all 15, 20 words that are in the adult stories. The kids' version only has 10 words. Um, And at that point, we're going back and we're doing the same story for a second time in the first session. So the first session is one story, but it's done twice. The first time they just get very general instructions. The second time now we're giving them more instructions. We're telling them to concentrate on forming a mental image of a chunk of the story. So what we're telling them to do is take several pieces of information and put it into two images. So looking at the story, The words you're trying to remember are apple, blossom, and butter, so you may form a mental image of a slice of an apple with butter on it um, and blossoming trees in the background. Um, I would form a mental image of the only way I can ever remember the word blossom is by thinking about the cherry blossoms in DC. That's my only, for some reason, all these years I've lived, that's my only association with the word blossom. But other people are different, They wouldn't. maybe they've never been to DC, why would they know that? So they might have a different association with the word blossom. So we want these mental images to be specific to the person, we want them to come up with their own, but at the same time we want them to combine multiple words, target words in the same image. Um, and what we're trying to teach them is that what you're doing is transferring verbal inter- information into pictures. And what our research has shown is that by doing that, you're engaging additional areas of the brain in the memory process. So you're not only learning it through your left hippocampus and your language regions, but you're now relying on more spatially-mediated regions of the brain to learn the information, and you're engaging more of the brain in the process. Sessions 5 through 8 focus on context. So now what we're doing is we're giving them a list of words that looks like this and we're asking them to make up a story using the provided list of words, telling them we want them to create an easily visualizable story. Um, And what they're doing is by creating an easily visualizable story and even a story in general, we're having them continue to use the imagery. We're emphasizing imagery throughout the entire treatment, but we want them to add the meaningful context now because there are going to be situations in their daily life where words are provided or information is provided with no context and they have to figure out what context they're going to use to remember it. So this is one of the lists of words that they use um, and it does take them quite a bit of time to come up with their own story, particularly when you get to more moderate to severe levels of brain injury. Um, But they can do it. I don't think we've faced anyone in any of our studies who was not able to do it. They can do it. What always happens is you get a sentence. So say the words are grass, snow, sidewalk. They always come up with a sentence that says the snow fell on the grass next to the sidewalk. And we let it go, goes through the story. But what they get back when we're getting rid of the words and we're only giving them blank words, blank lines, and they have to fill it in, is the blank fell on the blank next to the blank. And they realize that they didn't, provide context, they just grouped the words together, and you have to do both. So that's always a very interesting learning experience because almost everybody makes the error, uh, but it's easier to just let them make the error and correct it and tell them why it didn't work than to actually explain it because it's a little bit too complicated to explain. Um, So as an example, if the words were automobile, bottle, cash, and church. The person may come up with Sunday after church, I need to take my automobile to the bank to get cash for a bottle of wine. Just noting and when you go through this with them, this is a good sentence because Sunday is giving you the context for church, automobile is telling you you have to drive. So if your bank's down the block, automobile is not going to work. But if you have to drive to the bank, automobile is providing that context to the bank to get, the bank is giving you the cue and providing the context for the word cash, and then you have wine in there. So that bottle is cued by the word wine. For someone who doesn't drink wine, beer might be a better, um, a better, a better word to include in the sentence. So the sentence is going to be contingent, the con- construct of the sentence is going to be contingent on who is actually doing the therapy. Um, I mentioned the free recall list of all the capital words, capitalized words, as well as the cue to recall. So first we cue for contextual, and then we cue for semantic. And this is an example of what it looks like once you get rid of all those words. And that is part of the therapy. So they provide the story, and then the therapist is actually providing them with the Sunday after blank, I need to take my blank to the bank to get blank for a, bottle, for a blank of wine, and they fill it in. Um, this is the example of the lawn, sidewalk, snow example. There was snow on the sidewalk next to the lawn. That doesn't work. But if they do that, then you can provide them with a more effective example. So in the winter, the green lawn was covered in snow from shoveling the sidewalk. So each of those words has a cue with it that's providing context and making it easier for them to remember. I mentioned that in sessions nine to 10, they focus on everyday life. So the the difference really, it's a list of words, just like sessions five through eight, because that's what they've built up to. They no longer at this point need you to provide the story. They can provide the story. But the list of words is from a shopping list, a to-do list, or its directions. And they make up the story using that provided list of words with the knowledge that it has to be an easily visualizable story. So in, in terms of an easily visualizable story, the other thing that people need to think about is that's or depending on the level of cognitive functioning, is that some words do have multiple meanings and it's easier to visualize one meaning than it is to visualize the other meaning. Just because you're visualizing one meaning, it doesn't have to be the meaning that is the target of that sentence. It could be the other meaning because that's easier to visualize. Um, And that's something that people learn over time as they're going through the treatment. So that's an overview of the story memory technique as well as what's generally um, supported in the literature to date. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, and I'm also, you have my contact information on the, f- I think the front sheet or the back of the front sheet, as well as Nancy's, Morris contact information. So if you have any, if you, you would like any more information, um, Kessler does or should have the actual story memory technique here. But there were IT issues in terms of using it on a computer, um, so we can work with you to try to address some of that and try to. We're, we're happy to help you with whatever you need help with. Just let us know, you know, what you need if and when you choose to implement any of the stuff that
0: we're doing. For more information about the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www dot K-E-S-S-L-E-R F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org